fun fact. Actually, this fact is not fun, it's just a fact. A recent study from 2022 found that Black Americans are more likely to face an IRS tax audit. Yes, you heard me right. Black Americans are three to five times more likely to get audited on their tax returns. Now, for those of you who may not know this, because I've got audited before, it's a very scary experience, but an IRS audit is a intense review and examination of either an organization, right? If you have like a company or an individual's account and financial information to make sure that it's reported correctly according to the tax laws and to verify the reported amount of taxes are correct, right? So basically we file our taxes, right? In April, some of us get an extension to October and sometimes the government, they say it's random selection, The IRS will randomly select people to get audited to make sure that they're being honest, to make sure they've done their due diligence to report their taxes properly, right? Again, I say they normally say that it's random, but this study is bringing to light that maybe it's not so random because why are black people three to five times more likely to get audited, okay? So that is the tax fact of today. Welcome back to That Wasn't In My Textbook, our bi-weekly podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, and you're now listening to Season 4, Episode 5 on the Hidden History of Taxation, how Black Americans are impoverished by the tax system, and what we can do to fix it. Hello, folks. If you haven't already guessed by now, based on the tax fact and the show title, today we are talking about the dreadful and stressful taxes and how the tax system in particular is keeping money out of black folks' pockets, right? And making the accumulation of wealth, black wealth, right? Harder than it already is. And I thought this was the perfect time to shed light on You know, just the racial shit that's going on within the tax policy because, you know, the tax deadline is right around the corner. And right about now, you may be scrambling to get your tax documents together, like your W-2s and 1099s, or you might have done it already. You might be done with your tax work. Either way, this episode is perfect for you if you're doing your taxes, if you're not doing your taxes, because I think it's just something that we need to know um, about just how the tax system works and how it affects people, Black people in particular, and people of color. Now, I feel like I need to give a little disclaimer for this episode for my Black folks and other people of color, because this affects a lot of non-white folks. So if you're Black or you identify as a person of color and you're listening, In this episode, we're going to find out some fucked up things that definitely wasn't in our textbooks and that we're definitely not going to like. But don't use that as a reason not to file your taxes, okay? The IRS will come after your black ass. So make sure you file your taxes. (laughs) My other disclaimer for this episode is we do talk about the institution of slavery. Um, You know, I started this podcast to be an uplifting space, right? And to talk about history of Black people and other non-white folks, to talk about our contributions to American history in particular and just world history, right? And I try not to really focus on slavery, not because I don't think it's important, but because for a lot of us, slavery was in our textbooks. And for us as people of color or Black people, we've all faced some form of colonialization, slavery, genocide, right, at the hands of mostly European people. And so I just didn't want to focus on that. I wanted to do some more uplifting stuff, some more less known history, right? Because I think that there's a lot of slave movies, right? There's a lot of books about slavery. There is books about even, you know, Jim Crow and the Reconstruction era, even in the novel area, which I'm not interested in reading, y'all. I'm not interested in reading books about slavery. I'm not really interested in watching a movie, you know? It's kind of like watching trauma. But anyway, um, because of that, right, and not trying to bring up trauma for many of us who are descendants of people who were enslaved or of these different genocides that have happened to people of color. I don't really want to talk about that on this podcast. Um, however, you know, I made an exception for this episode because 
it's important that we understand where taxes come from and how that fits into Black history in particular here in America. So we are going to talk about it. And, you know, this episode is about racism. So how can you talk about racism and not talk about slavery? Okay, so those are my two little preferences. And I promise you the episode's going to be so, so good. In today's episode on the history of taxes, where we focus on how, you know, the tax policy is keeping money out of Black folks' pockets, we are joined by a badass tax lawyer, okay? I'm going to tell you all about her in a second. But you should just keep listening, right? Don't let the disclaimer scare you, because in this episode, we're going to talk about what taxes are and why we have them. We're going to get a brief overview of how taxes work and were created here in America and the relation of taxes and Black folks. That's the slavery part I warned you about. Um, And then we're going to get into the list of current day tax laws that hurt black folks and families the most. And then we'll also talk about some solutions, right? We're going to have this heavy part and then we're going to have the solution part of what the government can do to make these changes. As you already know, I am not a tax expert. So in today's episode, we have a bomb guest who will school us on all things that are discriminatory about the tax system. And her name is Dorothy A. Brown. And she is, I know I keep saying badass, but like literally that's the only word I can think to describe her. She's a badass professor who has won teaching awards at every school she's taught. You heard that. She's currently a professor of law at Georgetown. What got her on my radar is because I was just doing some, you know, searches, some Googling on taxes and racism, and her book popped up in my Google search, and her book is called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Ooh, that is a mouthful, but that is a very good title, which inspired the title of today's episode. And she is not only a professor, but she's an author, as I highlighted. She's a researcher and she's just like a great interviewer. She does all the media appearances. She's appeared on CNN, MSNBC, Bloomberg, and she's also written numerous opinion pieces in the New York Times, The Atlantic, CNN, Washington Post, Forbes, National Law Journal and the Bloomberg Review, just to name a few. Okay. So, this woman, she has a long and strong resume and she's great. Um, now, as usual, I will kick off the first five to 10 minutes of this episode, giving you some general history and facts and definitions. And then we're going to jump into this episode with Professor Dorothy Brown who's going to tell us about the different things that are going on in the tax system that are holding Black people back and some solutions that she has. And she, it's such a good interview. So just let's get into the history segment, okay? Let's jump into the history segment now. Taxes have been a part of human civilization since ancient times. In some societies, taxes were collected on goods that were traded. So in ancient Egypt, Taxes were collected in the form of grain and goods and were used to support the pharaoh and his court. In Ethiopia, taxes were collected in the form of salt to support the country. In the kingdom of Ghana, that existed between the 6th and 13th century, merchants who traded in gold and salt were required to pay taxes on their goods. Then there was also like labor taxes in ancient times as well. Some societies collected taxes in the form of labor. For example, in the kingdom of Demome, which existed from the 17th to the 19th century, citizens were required to provide labor for public works projects such as building roads and clearing lands. Property taxes was also done in ancient times. In some societies, taxes were collected based on the value of a person's property. So in the kingdom of Congo, which existed from the 14th to the 19th century, Property owners were required to pay taxes on their land and livestock. Here in America, like most countries around the world, taxes are collected in the form of money, moolah, green, whatever you call it. You know what I'm saying? Paper. Taxes are monetary charges enforced by the government on individuals, businesses, and other entities. The government then uses this collected money through what they got from our taxes to fund government programs and services. Taxes are taken out of our income. Property owners pay property taxes. 
We get taxed on goods and services, like when we go to the grocery store or we buy clothes, depending on what state you're in, because I don't think Jersey has taxes on clothes. But you get the drift. The purpose of the government taking money in the form of taxes is to collect it all together, right? And use it for public goods and services, such as building roads, helping with schools, police departments, fire departments, and social welfare programs. It uses all our taxes to fund those things. Oh, and let's not forget wars. Wars are also funded through our taxes. Taxation is a key component of modern day government, and it's used to regulate economic behavior by creating incentives and de-incentivizing for certain activities. Now, the problem with taxes, right, is that you can't tell the government what to use your money towards. The money that they take from your income or when you buy groceries, you can't be like, hey, um, I don't support this war, so don't use the money that you took from me through taxes and use it towards the war. Or, hey, you know, I believe in defunding the police, so I would like my money not to go towards that, right? You can't do that. So that's the problem with taxes. On top of the fact that the government also really incentivize and gives a lot of tax breaks to big businesses and rich people to get them out of paying so much, right, of taxes. And it's really fucked up. So, you know, the premise of taxes sounds good, but when you peel the layers back, it's like the government gets to control my money and I don't like it. (laughs) Now, like I mentioned before, taxes have been a part of human civilization since ancient times. But in America, the history of taxation is tied to the country's founding AKA the colonization of America, right? Um, When the United States declared its independence from Great Britain in 1776, it did so in part to protest against unfair taxes imposed by the British Empire, like the tax on tea, you know, all the stuff that was in our textbooks, the Boston Tea Party, pouring tea over the port, yada, 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 right? Now, the history of Black people in taxes in America is complex and troubling. For much of American history, especially the founding of America, Black people, right, were brought here and enslaved and they were kidnapped, right, and brought here for American labor and seen as property. And in some cases, they use the word chattel, right, which is really fucked up. So following the American Revolution that pretty much created America and made it independent from Britain, the Constitution needed to be written, right, new laws, New tax laws needed to be established. And so that's where we start seeing the connection between taxes, representation, and how the founding fathers, I put that in quotes, kind of talked about having people in captivity, Black people in captivity, right? So the first thing that kind of shows up in American history that talks about taxes and Black people is the three-fifth compromise. And now some people may know this in school and some people may not, and I'll try my best to explain it. But pretty much when they were meeting, the founding fathers were meeting and making up these new laws and new tax laws and figuring out the structure of government, they had a split. There were some people in this meeting who did not believe in the institution of slavery, didn't support it, right? A lot of Northerners. And then there were the Southerners who a lot of them had people in captivity. They profited off of enslaving Black people who they were in opposition. And in that opposition, they had to come up with a compromise, right? Because ending slavery, abolishing slavery, wasn't something that could be put on the table in 1776. So they came up with their compromise, right? To keep united both the North and the South and not bring this beef about whether or not they should continue with slavery, which obviously the answer is no. But they wanted to keep it going and they wanted to be united. So they created three-fifth compromise, which meant that representation in the House of Representatives was based on a state's free population plus three-fifths of its enslaved population. So the compromise was that the slaveholding states would get more seats in Congress and so they can have more representation and kind of dictate what laws get passed and all that other stuff. On the flip side of that, right, because they have more representation, that also contributed to their taxes. So the same ratio that was used for the Congress to represent them having more representation in Congress, which was the three-fifth compromise, it was also used to determine the federal tax contribution required of each state. So states that had enslaved people, right, had to pay a lot more in federal taxes. So 
That was the compromise. Slaveholding states get more seats in Congress, but had to pay more in taxes because they had enslaved people. Now, that was a lot. (laughs) It goes on and on and on. There's several other ways that taxes were used to support slavery in the United States. One way was that the federal government imposed tariffs on imported goods, including goods produced by enslaved labor, which helped to protect and promote the economic interests of enslavers. These tariffs made it more expensive for Americans to buy goods that were produced outside of the country, right? And so people were forced to buy domestically produced goods, which were domestically produced by who? People who were enslaved. And yeah, it made more domestic goods, more attractive, cheaper. And so that's how taxes, for instance, supported that. Taxes were also used to support the infrastructure and transportation networks that facilitated the transportation of enslaved people and goods produced by enslaved labor. Many states and local governments used tax revenue to build and maintain roads and build bridges, right? And other infrastructure that made it easier for people who kept people in captive, aka slaveholders, to transport their goods and enslave people across the country. (sighs) That was a lot. Okay. And then, you know, later on, on the flip side, talking about during the Civil War, taxes were used to challenge the institution of slavery. Before we talked about how taxes were used to support it. Then once the Civil War hit, taxes were used to challenge the institution of slavery. And so one way that this was done was the union government imposed taxes on income and luxury goods, which helped to finance the war effort and disrupt the economic system that supported slavery, right? So they would take slaveholders' money and use it for the war against them, essentially. Additionally, during the war, the government used taxes to seize property, including enslaved people, because you got to remember, Black people are seen as property. So they used taxes to get enslaved people and set them free from the Confederates who were in rebellion against the Union. The government then sold property that they got, not people, but like the land property that they got and used those proceeds to fund the war. So in summary, taxes were used to support slavery in a variety of ways in the United States. And then during the Civil War, taxes were used to undermine the institution of slavery. But even after the abolition of slavery, Black Americans continued to face significant economic and social barriers that made it difficult, right? To make a living, to earn a living, to accumulate wealth, right? To have that Black wealth. Discrimination in employment, housing, education, all the different levels, discrimination, every corner that you turn, unfortunately, contributed to a system that perpetuated our Black people's economic disadvantages. And taxes were often used as a means of enforcing inequality. For example, there was the poll tax, right? And they also had a literary test, but the poll tax was used right after the abolition of slavery because it was like you had to pay a tax in order to vote, right? And so as you can already guess, right, especially right after slavery, Black folks did not have the money or the means to pay a poll tax to vote. And so that eliminated a lot of Black people. And it was really a scare tactic, right, to get Black people to not vote by creating this poll tax. And that poll tax was around for a very, very long time until the Supreme Court struck it down in 1915. And even still, many states use a grandfather clause to keep descendants of slaves out of elections. So that is kind of the summary of the connection between taxes and slavery and Black people here in America. And I know that was a lot and I hope it all made sense. And it's just so mind blowing. I was just like having a hard time writing the script and like sharing it with you just to try to figure out how to succinctly share this connection. So I hope the connection is clear. And now we're going to jump into the interview with the badass tax lawyer, Dorothy Brown. And again, she is a professor at Georgetown. She is an author of a book called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. She is also a writer. And so she has found from her research this connection between 
Black people not being able to be wealthy and tax policy. And she's been able to see that a lot of tax policy uphold things that keep Black people back. And she was able to see that from her research. And her research actually inspired the study that I talked about and the fun fact that found that Black people are more likely to get audited. So without me saying too much more, because you've heard enough from me, let's jump into this interview with Dorothy Brown. Hi, Dorothy Brown. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you here today because, you know, taxes are coming. It's tax season. Yes, people it is. Are, you know, people are <laughs> scrambling. They're trying to do, they're trying to get their things deducted and get their W-2s and all those documents. And so, um, you know, I'm excited because you wrote a book called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. And so I think you're the perfect guest and this is a perfect topic to get people started as they're doing their taxes is something to just think about because I don't think any of us, myself included, think about racism and tax and how that works together. So could you just give us a little background on how you got into tax law and uncovering, you know, this connection between like tax policy and racism? I've read a little bit about it, but I know my listeners might not know. That's right. So, you know, I majored in accounting in college in case the law thing didn't work out. And I took a tax accounting course and I said, oh, I want to be a tax lawyer. So I went to law school with the idea that I'd be a tax lawyer. And then one of my professors said, you want to be a tax lawyer, you have to get an LLM in tax, which means after three years of law school, you have to have another year. So I did another year. And I actually thought race and tax had nothing to do with each other. Mm. So I'm an accidental race and tax person. So fast forward, I practice law and I become a law professor and I have time to kill this particular day. And I decide to read an article and the article said, if you're a black law professor, you should look for ways to examine racism in the context of whatever course you're teaching. Now, I teach tax law, so I thought that didn't have anything to do with me. Well, about three pages from the end of the article, the author asks, how do you know if there's a race and tax issue if you don't look? And I went, hmm, race and tax? I've never thought about that. But this person who the the author of the article was a mentor and really, really smart. So I said, if he's asking, I'm going to ask. So the first thing I discovered is the IRS and Treasury do not publish statistics by race. So how was I ever going to answer the question whether race had any impact on tax law if I couldn't get the data? But, you know, I'm fairly determined. So I said, I'm going to I'm going to reverse engineer this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read race research and I'm going to put my tax lenses on it and then I'm going to figure it out that way. So that's actually what happened. I read a statistic in a uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights publication that said married Black women contribute 41% to household income and married white women contribute 29%. Now, your listeners are like, yeah, whatever. But to (laughs) me, that was tax gold. Because what I know about the joint return is some married couples get a tax cut when they get married and other married couples pay higher taxes when they get married. Mm. And the statistic that said married black wives contribute 41% to household income told me married black couples would be more likely to pay a tax penalty when they got married. And because the wives are contributing 40%, pay a higher tax penalty because they're married. So that's how I stumbled into it by basically looking at race research and then applying my tax lens to it. Wow. Okay. So there's kind of like a marriage penalty in the context of like a black family. That's right. And what I realized was I did my parents' tax return. My mother was a nurse. She's still alive, but she's retired. My father was a plumber. He's since deceased. And they earned roughly equal amounts. And I always did their taxes and I came away thinking something's not right. And I couldn't put my finger on it because theirs was a fairly simple return and I wasn't doing anything wrong. Their their return was the way it was supposed to be. But I was an investment banker. I lived at home with my parents and I by myself made what my parents made together. And I should have paid a lot more taxes than they did, but I didn't. 
And I could not figure out why are they paying so much in taxes until, fast forward, I became a law professor, started doing this research and realized my parents were paying so much in taxes because they were married to each other. So Mm. you hear this conservative mantra that if more black people got married, they would lift themselves out of poverty. But we have our tax laws that the way black Americans do marriage, which is both spouses working full time, results in a tax penalty. Marriage does not help you if you're trying to save money and build wealth as a black American. Okay. So I'm just trying to understand. I think I get it. So you're saying the way that Black marriages traditionally work, which is where both people contribute to the household almost 50-50 versus white families. The way white families, Mm -hmm. where most white families have one spouse in the paid labor market and the other spouse is a stay-at-home spouse. That couple gets a tax cut. Mm, So white married couples are more likely to have their taxes go down when they get married Black married couples are more likely to have their taxes go up when they get married. So marriage operates differently based upon race. Okay. Okay. So now I'm hearing, I'm also, I'm imagining when I release this, right? There's going to be the people, the anti-marriage people are going to be like, see, this is why I don't want to get married. (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) are you supporting that? No, but like, no, no, no. what would be your solution is that either women should stay at home when they get married, black women need to quit working (laughs) or (laughs) or my solution is we need to go back to what our tax system was like at the very beginning in the early part of the 20th century, which is we all filed as individuals and there was no such thing as a marriage penalty or marriage bonus. Right. So we need to go back there. But until that, I would tell anyone who's looking to get married, do not get married on New Year's Eve, wait till January 1st. And the reason I say that is if you're married on New Year's Eve, your status at the end of the year is how you're taxed all year. So if you get married on December 31st, you're treated as married all year, which means for that year, you're going to pay a penalty. But if you wait until January 1st, the very next day, you delay the penalty a whole year. Okay. Okay. So one day buys you a whole year of freedom. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't file taxes individually, even if you're married. You could file married filing separately, but that doesn't help you. The way the rate structure works, married filing separately usually penalizes you. And you only find folks married filing separately if one spouse doesn't want to get entangled with their other spouse's income and, mm-hmm. and business. Yes. Right. So, you know, I can think of a famous example, John McCain and his, the late John McCain and his wife, they filed separately because his wife had a lot of business interests. And if you file joint returns, if your spouse, for example, commits fraud, you're liable. You. Yeah. Yes. You're <laughs> liable. You know, so when the Trump tax returns were made public, and I saw that Melania had signed the returns. I'm like, yeah, okay, that may cost you. <laughs> yes. Okay. That makes sense. Are there any other examples similar to like the marriage penalty that maybe some single folks or other folks might need to know about that, that show that the connection between race and taxes? So I will talk about single filers. Mm-hmm. So if you are married and you have $50,000 of income, the tax rate that applies to the last dollar is going to be lower than if you're single and file with $50,000 of income. So let me say that again. Two households, $50,000 of income. One is married, one is single. The single household is going to pay higher taxes than the married household. So our rate structure penalizes single people. Oh, okay. (laughs) So you're penalized if you're single and you're penalized if you're married. If you're black. If you're black. (laughs) No. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So really the only solution to making sure there's no singles penalty and there's no marriage penalty is to have everybody follow as an individual, which means we need the law to change, which means as your listeners hear people talk about taxes and they want to run out of the room screaming, they can't because taxes, I always say taxes is a civil rights issue. Mm. And if you care about civil rights, you need to pay attention to tax policy. Yes. I know you don't want to hear it, 
Yes, I know, <laughs> April 15th. However, it's costing you money every April 15th. You really need to pay attention so that you can make your elected officials pay attention to it and they can hopefully fix it. Okay, okay. So you're saying when you're black and you're making $50,000, your dollar gets taxed more versus if you're white? No. What okay. I'm saying is mm-hmm. the way it works, well, let's put it this way. The way societal racism works is we mm-hmm. carry our racial identities onto our tax returns. So what I'm saying is if you are black and single or white and single versus black and married or white and married, the single taxpayer is going to pay higher taxes than the married taxpayer. That's like regardless of race. But we know race is relevant because we have a higher percentage of singles who are black Mm -hmm. than a percentage of singles who are white, right? So who pays the singles penalty is going to disproportionately hit black Black Americans. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Because if you think about, I guess, the wealth gap, right? Even the difference in salary that we have. Yes. That probably affects how we file taxes and our returns and all of that, which is also right. so it's a connection of even just your salary before we even go into the race policy. I mean, the tax policy, yes. right? That yes. affects it all works together. It does. And, you know, the reason why, you know, there are a couple of reasons why we tend to see more married black couples with two full time wage earners. One is labor discrimination right in the market causes black um, spouses to be paid less. So you need two incomes to make ends meet. Although Black Americans tend to have marriages where both spouses work, even at high income levels when you don't necessarily need the second income. So there's a cultural difference in the sense that Black wives tend to to work more and they tend to want to work more even at high income levels. There's sociology research that says Black marriages tend to be more egalitarian because you have two people working and contributing money than white marriages where you have one stay-at-home spouse that's dependent on the labor market spouse bringing in the income. And therefore, the it, because there's, there's a theory that people, th- that decision-making follows the money. Mm-hmm. So if two parties are contributing money, then the decision-making is more likely to be shared. If one party is bringing in the money, the decision-making is less likely to be equally shared. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I get that. I get how that all works together with cultural difference, you know, how we're looked at in the workforce, how we're giving salaries, how that all connects to then how we file our taxes, which are already right. have policies in place that do not allow us to thrive or to build wealth that's right. at the same that's right. rate as our white counterparts. Yes. So that's crazy. Yes, it is. And before I started doing research and before I wrote the book, people weren't talking about it. But once the whiteness of wealth was published, you know, I got publicity, I'd go on TV, I would complain about the fact that the IRS and Treasury didn't publish statistics. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, people were like, yeah, that seems odd. We have all these government agencies where race statistics are published, mm-hmm. but somehow not in Treasury, which has more money running through it than you know, basically any other government agency. So in January of this year, Treasury for the first time published a race and Hispanic ethnicity analysis of some of the top tax breaks, which is a first. And I hope to see more out of Treasury. But it's, you know, it's it's significant. There seems to be a movement afoot where more more than just me, more people are looking at this race and tax um, issue. So my book inspired a group of researchers at Stanford and elsewhere to publish a study on audits. And what they found is if you are black and you try to claim the earned income tax credit, you are three to five times more likely to be audited than if you're not black. Mm. So this study recently came out. And when the new IRS commissioner was, um, he was a nominee, now he's confirmed, but was testifying before the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Wyden referenced the study and said, okay, this is bad. What's the IRS going to do? What is the IRS going to do to document that this is happening and how are they going to fix it? Which made my heart sing because now the IRS for years 
has basically taken the approach that we don't ask for race, so we don't know race, so we can't possibly be discriminating against people. But mm. here's what we know about systemic racism. You don't have to have intent for the system to operate in an anti-Black manner. And that's what the research showed. And it was picked up by members of the Senate Finance Committee and the IRS has a 60-day deadline to produce a report explaining what happened and what they're doing to fix it. And I love it. That's great, because I was just about to ask you about that. I, <laughs> I read that you um, you quoted that Black Americans in the rural South are more likely to get audited than their white peers. So I was like, are yes. there any other kind of stats like that that people should know, like those little mind-blowing stats that are that you know further prove your point of the connection between race and tax policy? Yes. So that study talked about the earned income tax credit, but it also showed at other income levels, Black Americans were more likely to be audited than their non-Black peers. So, you know, people have only just begun thinking about enforcement. You know, I call the IRS the tax police. Mm. And when you think about policing in America, right? Yeah. And we know what policing does to black people. Right. Mm -hmm, we yeah. should not be surprised that the tax police are also anti-black. <laughs> exactly. So, yes. Right. So here we have research that shows that. But my research shows whether we're talking about home ownership or whether we're talking about paying for college or whether we're talking about work, the tax laws operate in a way to benefit white Americans while disadvantaging black Americans. That, yeah, that's really sad. Can you talk about some of the, what you just touched on, like the, how it is the tax policy is a disadvantage for Black people with colleges? Can you talk about some of that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when I think about paying for college, most Black Americans pay for college with debt. Mm -hmm. And we have a student loan debt interest deduction, but it's capped at 2500 And as you work through the numbers, the typical Black college graduate has $50,000 in debt, whereas the typical white college graduate has something like $30,000 in debt. And 50 something thousand dollars, the interest on that is much higher than $2,500. So black college grads aren't able to get the full benefit of the deduction in the early years, whereas white college grads are. So we have this, this policy that caps interest rate student loan interest deductions. And worse than that is it's a $2,500 cap per person or return. So if two black college graduates get married, mm. on if they, before they got married, each of them could take $2,500. Now that they get married together, they can only take $2,500. So the more, you know, the moral of the story is you know, how do you have a policy that discourages black college grads from marrying each other? Right. Mm. What what is going on in Congress that we, we see this? So with, with respect to student debt, we see that disparity. We also see, you know, for example, tax exempt colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. They they don't have to pay taxes. But the federal government doesn't ask them for anything in exchange, right? So we see these selective universities over the last 25, 30 years, their black enrollment numbers have not changed, mm. but they still get this tax exemption. So, you know, my argument is in exchange for the tax exemption, colleges and universities that get a tax exemption should publicize what percentage of their student body are black? How has it changed in racial diversity? How has it changed over time? How much of the student body gets financial aid? Mm -hmm. How much of a debt load? What are the graduation rates? So at the very least, we know what we're getting in exchange for this tax exemption, which yeah. right now is just free. I didn't even think about colleges that have tax exemption, like right. some of these things, you know? It's right. Like, and billion dollar endowments. Mm -hmm. you know? so it's like, come on, people, we can yeah. do better here. How do you have a billion dollar endowment and then you have students graduating with loads and loads of debt? That's right. That's right. Because your policy, you know, is to make sure you're growing your endowment and you're not really that concerned about your neediest students being able to start an, a career that enables them to build wealth and not just stay in poverty for 
10, 20 years paying off their student loans. Okay, so we talked about college. Is there another sector that this affects? Did you say salary as well? Yes. So let's talk about jobs. So, you know, there's this thing called occupational segregation, which basically tells us there are black jobs, there are white jobs, right? Mm. We know that there are certain jobs that black Americans get targeted into, even if they are qualified for other jobs. And what we see is the jobs with the highest percentage of white workers are the jobs that come with tax-free benefits like health insurance and retirement accounts. And the jobs that are disproportionately held by black and brown Americans tend to be the ones that do not come with tax-free health insurance or tax-free retirement accounts. So that means you're paid less if you're a black worker, you're less likely to be able to participate in your retirement account because your employer doesn't provide one, and you're less likely to have health insurance, which means when you get sick, you know, you're one illness away from bankruptcy, right? You're one illness away from losing your job and, you know, losing a myriad of other things. So what you see is your typical Black worker is less likely to have these tax-free benefits that their white peers do. Mm. And since they're tax-free, the tax laws see it as invisible. So you could, you know, you could have a be a black worker with $50,000 of income and a white worker with $50,000 of income. White worker has these tax-free benefits. Black worker does not. They're going to be taxed the same, but they're not in the same position. Mm-hmm. The white worker with these health care benefits and with these retirement benefits is a lot wealthier than the worker that doesn't have those. That is a great point, right? All these benefits that are not given to a lot of these positions that Black folks are put into in in the job force. That's Um, right. So earlier you said you define the IRS as the tax police, which I think is a great um, way to define them because based on your research and other things that we've come out to see, we know that they operate similar to the police force in terms of practicing racism, discrimination, um, and all that horrible stuff. So my other question, how would you define taxes, especially for black folks? Yeah. Like what would you, how would you define taxes? You know, I, I would define taxes fairly broadly, right? There's income taxes, there's property taxes. There are, you know, when I, um, sales taxes, excise taxes, (laughs) right? So there, you know, you go by, when you buy goods in the grocery store or you're you know buying clothes or you're buying food right so so we pay a lot of taxes not all of which is just individual income taxes which is what I study and teach yes. but taxes you know you can think of a lot of different ways to define taxes but it's basically government extraction of income from my pocket or wealth from my pocket. That's really how I define (laughs) the government in my pocket. Yes. Yes. Government in my pocket. Get your hands out of my pocket as my mother likes to tease me. Yes. (laughs) So I know one of your proposals to fix um, the race disparities in tax policies was to file separately to bring that back, especially for married people. Do you have any other proposals that people should know that, that could help with taking racism out of taxes, tax policy? So, you know, the other area we haven't talked about is home ownership. So there are tax subsidies for home ownership. Mm -hmm. Most people have heard of the mortgage interest deduction, but that is becoming less and less relevant as less and less people get a tax benefit from the mortgage interest deduction. But there's another subsidy for home ownership. If you sell your home at a gain, you can exclude from income and therefore not have to pay taxes on up to half a million dollars. Okay. So if I sell my house for if you're two single, million, yeah. If you're single, mm-hmm. you get to exclude two hundred and fifty thousand. If you're married, you get to exclude half a million dollars. Okay. So if I pay a hundred for my house and I sell it at two fifty, I have a gain of one fifty. Mm-hmm. That 150 of gain, I can receive tax-free because of a tax break. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, one, most Black Americans are not homeowners. So mm-hmm. that subsidy is lost. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not a homeowner, you don't get it. 
Yes. And and the second point is black homeowners tend to live in different neighborhoods than white homeowners. And research shows that the real appreciation is in the all white neighborhoods where most black people don't live. And what happens <laughs> and can't live, right? Mm-hmm. Can't live, don't want to live, you know, don't live, you know, so what we see is most black Americans living in racially diverse or all black neighborhoods. So they'll get some appreciation, but they won't get as much as if they lived in the all white neighborhood and black homeowners are more likely to sell their home at a loss. And guess what? The tax laws do not permit you to deduct a loss on the sale of your home. If you sell stock at a loss, you get a tax break. You sell your home at a loss, no tax break for you. So one of the proposals I have is to just repeal subsidies for homeownership. Because until the majority of Black Americans are homeowners, most of us are not eligible for that tax break. So just get rid of it. That's, so that's, mm-hmm. that's one of those proposals that I think should happen because the general idea is personal family living expenses are not deductible. That's why we can't deduct rent. Well, if I can't deduct rent, nobody should be able to deduct costs of owning a home. Yeah, that makes sense. That's not yeah. that's not fair. No, it is not fair. Hmm. Well, I think you've pretty much answered all my questions. If people want to learn more about this, I know they can definitely read your book, right? And yes. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Where else, like, do you have any other suggestions or resources for where they could learn more about this or what should they keep in mind as they're filing their taxes? Is there anything they can do? You know, by the time we get to the filing of the taxes, all the activity has taken place, right? Mm-hmm. That person got married on New Year's Eve. Yes. They didn't ask us. Okay. Yeah. We can't do anything about that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, part of it is just making sure you stay on top of paying your taxes, right? Um, and even if, let's say, let's say you owe taxes, but you can't pay your taxes, then get into an installment agreement with the IRS. It's always better to work on this up front rather than looking over your shoulder and hoping the IRS doesn't catch up with you, right? Because they will. The tax man cometh. So, you know, always file your taxes. Even if you owe something, you can reach out to the IRS and they will generally work out a payment agreement. It's in their best interest for you to pay something as opposed to nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when you hear conversations about taxes, don't run away. Stay and listen because there's something you can learn that may be able to help you, right? So most people don't want to hear anything about taxes. And I'm going to tell you that's been hurting you. It's certainly been hurting (laughs) Black people, right? So don't run away anymore. Okay. Okay. So I love that tip of, you know, don't file your taxes every year. You know, don't be scared. Get on a payment plan is what I'm hearing. And when you hear tax conversations, stay, listen, learn. Don't run away. Yes, that's right. That's right. You got (laughs) it. I got it. (laughs) Well, um, the signature, the last question of the show, I'm going to ask you that now. And I know you already wrote a book, but this is a little bit different because if you had an opportunity to write a chapter in a textbook on your specialty here, which is like race and tax policy, what would you call it and why and what would you include in it? So I would, the title of the chapter would be Tax Laws Are Not Colorblind. Mm, I like that. Right? Because people tend to think of tax laws colorblind. That would be the title of the chapter. And then I would basically, you know, walk the reader through one of the examples we talked about, whether it was marriage or student debt or homeownership. And I would show how a statute that said nothing about race actually impacted taxpayers differently based upon their race. Wow. I love that. And I would definitely read that chapter. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dorothy, for joining me today. Um, I will include all your information, your social, your website in the show notes so people can learn more about you. But if you have any other things you want people to follow you on or any projects you want them to um, be on the lookout for, you can definitely let them know now. So I'm on Twitter I'm a, I'm on Instagram. I post to Twitter more than I post to Instagram, and I don't post to Twitter that much. But I do when when an interview comes out, I post it okay. um, to Twitter. And I'm working on my next book, which is on reparations. 
So I'll have to come back to talk to you when that book is finished and out. You definitely have to come back. We're going to do a history of reparations episode. Y'all heard it here. So, you know, she avoids (laughs) my emails. Y'all know I'm going to send you. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Dorothy. This was so informative and I'm excited to see how people learn from this. Thank you. I really appreciate it. that is the conclusion of season four episode five on the history of taxation and how black americans are impoverished by the tax system i hope y'all really enjoyed that interview with dorothy she was so amazing i learned so much um just to do a quick review right the marriage tax, that really blew my mind of even how culturally, since we have different cultures and even how we have discrimination and salaries leads Black people to have more of a 50-50 household. And that actually hurts us when it comes to taxes because we don't get like a tax write-off, right? And even when she was talking about housing and property ownership and how that works when you sell your house too soon, or if you buy a house of a certain caliber, you don't get a tax write-off for it if you sell it, right? And it doesn't fit these stimulations of the tax law. And a lot of times we don't have that opportunity as Black people. So she really dropped a lot of knowledge in this episode that has me very reluctant about filing my taxes and looking at, you know, just everything differently. Even the way student loans, she talked about that, how we have a cap on how much you get back on your tax returns for student loans, but we know that Black people in particular mostly have the most student loans. Why? Because we also don't have the most wealth in this country. So it's really interesting to see how these policies that they claim are colorblind are actually really discriminating against Black folks, right? And so She gave us a light of hope that, you know, the IRS and the government says that they are going to start looking into these things due to her research and other research that has come out inspired by her discovery. And that makes me hopeful, a little hopeful, you know, so I'm going to hold on to that now. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you know, if you've learned something new, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a review or contact me online. I would love, love, love your feedback. Sometimes I think I'm just talking to myself in a mic, which is cool, but I would love to hear from you all as well. As usual, I encourage you to check out the show notes or to head over to thatwasntinmytextbook.com to get more information on today's topic, to get the links and all that. If you want to support and follow Dorothy online, she uses Twitter, which is really cool. And as I said before, please, if you have the time, leave a review that helps us rank and that helps more people find us online and share an episode with a friend. I would really, really appreciate that. And of course, follow That Wasn't In My Textbook all over the interwebs. We even have a YouTube now. We have some little shorts on there. So definitely check that out. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Be sure to come back for our new episode on the history and science behind procrastination, which is really, really, really good. Like I say about every episode because they are. And until next time, remember, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power.